the entire cast would squeeze into the village to look at the playbacks. And they would go crazy. They would just raise the roof of that tent over our heads, and they would love it. And it made them all feel like they were all working on this as an ensemble, as a family. And I hadn't felt this intimacy on a movie set before since E.T. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In today's episode, a beloved story of forbidden love is revisited in director Steven Spielberg's musical drama, West Side Story. The film retells the story of Tony and Maria, two teenagers from different ethnic backgrounds and rival gangs who fall in love in 1950s New York City. But tensions between their respective friends set them on a path toward tragedy. In addition to West Side Story, Mr. Spielberg's extensive directorial credits include the DGA award-winning feature films The Color Purple, Schindler's List, and Saving Private Ryan, and the DGA award-nominated films Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, Amistad, and Munich. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Spielberg shares insight into the making of West Side Story with fellow director Damien Chazelle. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Well, I think they liked it, so uh, I think we can jump right in. Um, this actually speaks to kind of something I was, I was just mentioning to you outside, which uh, was one of the things that was most moving to me when I got to see the film for the first time, is especially now, you know, when... The movie theater experience is uh, sort of questioned and scrutinized more than ever. The the something like this that somehow feels big and big screen and demanding this kind of experience, and yet not in an impersonal sort of machine made way, but in this very handmade, tactile, personal way. Um, it feels more rare than ever and more special than ever. Um, so I, I yeah. So. Um, on that note, I would love to... Well, there's a million questions I have, but, but I do just want to start at the basic thing. You know, I, I know you've, you've had brushes with the musical as a genre before. Why? Well, why did it take so long, given how good you are at it? And, uh, uh, and, and, what, and why West Side Story? I didn't know I'd be any good at it. I mean, I haven't made a musical ever except little, you know, like you said, little snippets like the end... Um, you know, under the credits of Temple of Doom, there was a little Busby Berkeley number. And then there was a little fight in 1941 at the USO Club. And, and that, that's pretty much it. And um, I, I knew, I, I know how much I wanted to reimagine West Side Story because I've loved it ever since I heard the record. And I was 11 and living in New Jersey. We just, I, we'd moved to Phoenix and my parents went out and bought the original cast album. And I completely wore it out listening to it. And I memorized all the songs. I'm like 11 years old. And I came to the table one day. I'll never forget this. And I sat with my mom and dad and my two sisters before the third one was born. And I started singing one of the songs. And I sang right in front of my mom and dad. I said, my father is a bastard. My mom's an SOB. My grandpa's always plastered. My grandma pushes tea. They freaked out. I mean, my dad was yelling, who taught you to say the word bastard? Where did you hear the word SOB? And I said, you bought the record. It was on the record. They actually went and listened to it and didn't realize that. But, um, 
So this movie has, this story has been in my life for a long time, and I just didn't know what outlet it would be. And then in 61, when the film came out, I saw it five times in the movie theater. I saw it five times, probably twice a week until it moved, because, you know, in those days, uh, uh, it was a road show, and a film comes to your town, and it's in your town for, if it's a hit, three weeks, and if it's a big hit, five or six weeks. So I think I probably saw West Side Story at least five times in Phoenix, Arizona. And so, and, and you know, and it, it just was something that I've wanted to do, a genre I've wanted to get into my whole life, and yet I didn't want to do anything but reimagine this because I th- kept thinking as I got older and older, my kids used to perform this at home. They used to do the balcony scene on the staircase. They memorized all the words too, and I, I have this all on video, by the way. Maybe I can put this out with the, when it comes out, I can put out all my, my kids actually playing Maria Tony and Nita and Bernardo. They're really good at it too. Um, but but this was just something that I thought was relevant in terms of uh, the story. The story is about a word that wasn't invented in 57, xenophobia, and it's about love, and it's about hate, and it's about race. And there's so many elements that I thought would fit into the new conversations all of us are having and have been having for over a decade, if not longer. So I guess, I guess then just in terms of like charting the, the, uh, the timeline of it, at what point um, – do you start thinking about West Side Story not just as a fan of the material, a fan of the music, but as as potentially you know a filmmaker who's going to reimagine it? Is it always kind of uh, simmering in your mind uh, from '61 through to today as you're making your own films, or or does it come to you a little bit later in the game? Well, the idea of actually reimagining the film, you know, came to me later in the game. But I floated this past Katie, my wife, and she had always encouraged this. She kept saying, you know, the time is right for this. And 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 it, I really only started to take it seriously when I went to Tony Kushner. We had done Lincoln together, and we had done, uh, before that, Munich, and an unproduced script that I was going to direct that he wrote. And I approached him with this, and um, and he was skeptical for the same reason I was scared. Because the 61 Robert Wise, Jerome Robbins film is a enduring American classic. It's a great movie. And Tony was, we, we were both intimidated by that fact. But we also thought that this could be a ma- reimagined in a way. And I was talking to Walter Mirisch on the phone this morning. He's 100 years old now. He produced West Side Story in 61. And I'm trying to get Walter into a theater to see it. And he's 100. He doesn't travel so much. But he called me to congratulate me for, from, for some of the things he's been reading and and he says he said Steve, what do you think the distinction is between the '61 film and your film today? And I said, um, I think the distinction is that you made a West Side Story for all time, and I've made a West Side Story for this time, and and we'll see what happens. But it's, this is for this time, and he he he's a wonderful guy. So. So I, I really feel that Tony Christian was the one that lit, lit the biggest fire under me because he suddenly saw a way to give voice and depth and dimension and complexity to these characters, to give an entire story to Chino, to give an entire trans story to anybody's, and to essentially, you know, um, just go go deep, go vertical with all these characters. And I think there's only about... of the dialogue from the original 57 play that was written by Arthur Lawrence brilliantly. We've only used 5% of the dialogue, 95% of it. You know, Tony has enriched the experience by finding new voices for all these characters. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the things I found so fascinating watching it is, uh, I mean, it's the sort of balance act that you, that you're able to do in the film, the balance between the sort of, 
fantastical elements that are always part of the musical genre and then this new kind of realism that you are able to really ground it in. But also the balance, I think, between, yeah, between times. I mean, I think this is, uh, you mentioned the extent to which the 61 film is timeless. I I, I felt the same thing watching this film uh, uh, when I saw it for the first time. Your your version was, was that, you, you you feel today in it. You feel the period, you know, that, that it's ostensibly capturing in it. You feel everything in between. I think you feel the future in it. You feel that it's a kind of vision of cinema that doesn't actually depend on a specific time and place. The way you, the way you balance the sort of oldest movie tropes with, you know, with the, what we were just talking about, with a cast of kids who have, uh, with a few exceptions, never been. Uh, in films before. Uh, 50 never in, appeared in front of a camera before in the cast. F- how 50. many? 50 of them? Five zero. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, so right, that that alone speaks to it. Um, and they're freaking out right now. They don't know what's happening to them. <laughs> All of them. We just came back from New York after a week and these kids, I mean, my Maria's, she, I cast her, at, she was a junior in high school, 17, and she was on stage playing Princess Fiona in Shrek when I found her. <laughs> <laughs> In high school. And the rest, Ariana DeBose, who plays Anita, is probably one of the most experienced because she was on Broadway. She got a Tony nomination for playing Donna Summer about five years ago. But everybody yeah. else is really new. And, and even she, I think, had uh, either never been on camera before or... Never been on camera. It's the first time. David Alvarez had never been on camera, although yep. he was one of the three Billy Elliots. Yep. Yep. Uh, and he was, uh, what, 11? Something like that. Yeah. Right. So you took, uh, to use the sort of the old term that, that I love, you took a bunch of hoofers uh, who had uh, who really didn't have much experience with this thing called movies. Um, and you put them on screen, you feel that sort of fresh facedness. I don't know, I guess the bigger question is just that, going back to that idea of balance. Um, you know, at a certain point, you make this decision, okay, we're going to make a West Side Story that is, uh, that is of the moment. But we still want to keep what's timeless about it. We want to update it, but certain aspects, of course, you're you're not updating in the sense that you choose to to stay in the period of the original. So I'm just curious about you know you and Kushner as as before a frame is shot, figuring out sort of where you're going to update, where you're going to remain true, where you want to find that balance. Uh, if you could talk a little bit about well, that. the first idea that we came up with, we were first trying to break into the story in a legitimate way where we would not feel like claim jumpers, but feel like we were bringing something else to a, a, a an incredible classical music score by Bernstein and incredible words by a 24-year-old wordsmith, songsmith named Stephen Sondheim. That's how old he was when he wrote the words. And we felt really that we wanted, you know, to bring, uh, we wanted to capture that and recapture that and not change any of that. That helped limit the period to the 50s because the, the, the idiom of the lyrics are 1950s, even though the idiom of our dialogue, even though we don't use colloquial uh, contemporary slang, it's very much of today. That was sort of the, the blend. But um, the first thing we thought about was starting the story with what Robert Moses did with his um, slum um, reclamation, his slum his, his slum project where he, they determined to clear San Juan Hill of all the Puerto Rican families, thousands of families, by basically doing something called urban renewal where they would tear down the entire you know west side of New York from 60th Street to 72nd from Columbus Avenue to the river and in its place put up the Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts, which is where we did our rehearsals, which is so ironic. <laughs> 
and all the casting was done at the Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. So there was a there was a kind of witchy thing happening here. That was we wanted to start it that way to really show that the Sharks and the Jets were fighting uh, over something that was already tagged for complete demolition, um, and they were fighting under the shadow of the wrecking ball. So what they were fighting about had little to do with territory. I mean, it's part of what's so poignant, I think. About, and, and, and of course, you sort of establish it right from the brilliant opening shot. Um, and, you know, the, the, the sort of idealized vision of New York that, you know, kind of, uh, you know, was sort of behind, I think, some of the Robert Moses plans and, and, and the sort of, uh, you know, the, um, the kind of signs that you return to. You do it right. again in, in America later, uh, wonderfully with Anita and David, uh, 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 or Ariana and David. Um, you know, these sort of promises of this is what the brand spanking new New York will be uh, while your on-screen characters fight over what remains and what's destined for, uh, like you say, for the wrecking ball. Can, can you talk a bit about just on a practical level creating that sort of New York um, uh, production design, uh, locations, how you sort of use the city to play a different era of the city? Thank you. It was a great question. We had a brilliant production designer who I've used twice before on two other films. He did Bridge of Spies and he did Ready Player One. His name's Adam Stockhouse and he does all of Wes Anderson's movies, all of them. And you, so you've seen his work before and he really was able to locate in four boroughs and Harlem and Patterson, New Jersey. He was able to find what New York looked like in 1957 and all we really had to do was take out bars on windows, satellite dishes and air conditioners digitally. The only digital work in the movie is that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's really it. And taking out um, crosswalk and, and painting all of the uh, uh, traffic signals um, black from, from, what, from yellow where they are today. And that was it. And he really did an amazing job in pointing out the locations that most suited the script. Um, and then this guy, amazing costume designer, Paul Taswell, did the costumes. He's brilliant. He did the, he did the uh, Broadway production of Hamilton. That's how I found him. And uh, he just did an exceptional job on this. And everybody, this was the thing about musicals, which I didn't know beforehand, because I've had a lot of great collaborations on movies, but not on musicals. There's two more tools in your toolbox. There's dance and there's song. But it creates an esprit de corps. It creates a daily happiness and also a lot of hard work and a lot of fear of our dancers getting hurt or slipping on wet. I wouldn't let Janusz wet down any streets at all. It drove him crazy. It drove him crazy. I said, you can't wet down. If you wet down, somebody's going to slip and they're going to sprain their ankle. You can't do that. So, so, but, but there was a happiness every single day because the music does something to you when you're making a movie. And, um, and I wanted the cast to feel like they were part of the creative process. So after every really good take, you have to imagine this. You know how small those tents are where we have the monitors in, in Video Village? The entire cast would squeeze into the village to look at the playbacks. And they would go crazy. They would just raise the roof of that tent over our heads. And they would love it. And it made them all feel like they were all working on this as an ensemble, as a family. And I hadn't felt this intimacy on a movie set before since E.T., that was a long time ago. Yeah, it's, it, there's something, uh, I mean, in a way, everything you're saying, in some way, doesn't sound surprising, given how the movie feels on the screen. You feel the, the enthusiasm, you feel the infectiousness, you feel that kind of, uh, um, yeah, that sort of glee uh, in making it that, that I think every, any good musical should sort of communicate um, uh, to an audience. I think, uh, but, but again, what's so sort of striking here is that, 
you feel that glee and yet your opening shot looks like almost, you know, it belongs more to Saving Private Ryan than to E.T. Oh, yeah, yeah. Are are those like so? So so the 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 basically all the the amazing kind of half demolished buildings. Those were constructed. uh, uh, So so Adam uh, he uh, he built all that constructed those. That's all built. Yeah. As a New Jersey uh, uh, former Jerseyite myself, Mm -hmm. what's the Patterson Jersey sequence? Well, Patterson, we shot San Juan Hill, so everything in the opening prologue is what's in Patterson, and half of America was shot in Patterson. Um, and wow. everything else was shot in Harlem. The rest of America was shot in Harlem. I wanted to take, you know, on the, on the stage play, as you know, in, in the 61 film, it's done on a rooftop. The sharks, girls and boys dance and sing and, and, and have this kind of angry conversation about staying or going back to Puerto Rico on the rooftop. And because I really think that the best sequence for me in, in Robert Wise's movie is that rooftop sequence, America in the Robert Wise film is without part. No one can even hold a candle to that. I wouldn't go near it. And that just because it was so greatly choreographed and the angles and the way the camera was part of the dancing, I wouldn't go near the rooftop. So that's what motivated Tony and I to bring it into the streets and let it be a real celebration of Puerto Rican culture with everybody coming out to dance with the rest of the uh, sharks. So the shooting of that is split then over two enti- entirely different uh, locations. Yeah, yeah. We, it didn't take two months to shoot America, but we would shoot like one day, one week, and then we'd shoot three days another week. And mm-hmm. then I think it was about a, about 13 days to shoot the whole thing, mm-hmm. but over three months. Yeah, got it. I mean, did, was there any kind of attempt at sort of a, a rhyme or reason in terms of how you were scheduling out the the, the musical numbers uh, and how you were interspersing in the process yeah. of shooting between musical and non-musical? Or did you try to... I try to stay in continuity. It or try to I try to stay in continuity because I didn't want... I mean, we had kids who never been, had never been in a film before. And I, I didn't want our Maria and, and, and Ansel, who has been in a few films, I didn't want them experiencing the end of the movie in the middle of the movie, which sometimes because the budget forces us to really go wildly out of continuity. So everything from the rumble to the end is shot in continuity. And so the last thing, almost one of the last things we shot was uh, Tony's death. And that was a, the last thing we shot with with them as a couple. So they really had four and a half months of of relationship, of filming, of of, of being together and apart in terms of just the grief and the joy that West Side Story provides filmmakers just based on the original score. They were able to really um, react to that. The problem with that was getting them to stop crying, not getting – that was the problem. When, when we shot – and I, I did four numbers live. I, I, I shot um, – with the brilliant Janine Tesori, who was the vocal director. And we shot uh, Rita Moreno singing Somewhere live. We, which, and, she, and, and she is a force of wonderful nature, I'm telling you. She's something. Um, we shot A Boy Like That live. And that was the hardest number to shoot because it was emotionally really uh, close to impossible for both of the, you know, for both Ariana and Rachel to keep it together, to hold it together, because that was all done live. And then we shot um, One Hand, One Heart completely live, Tony, and in in the chapel or in the um, cloisters. And then finally we shot 75% of um, the balcony scene tonight is, is done live. Uh, and, and, And the reason we didn't do the rest of it live, all the wide shots had to be done uh, because if you got the perspective far enough back, uh, that was a set he built, five-story set of that air shaft. 
Um, half the air shaft, the opening, the opening of the air shaft where Tony walks toward Maria, she's on the balcony, that's in Harlem. That's all night for night. But all the stuff where they're singing on the balconies, that was all filmed. And if I got the camera in close, I could do it live. But if the camera went back at all, it had to be to, to playback. Mm-hmm. And uh, how much of that sort of divvying up of live versus playback was uh, sort of uh, figured out in rehearsals? or in, Was it always sort of in your head that, you know, we'll do the kind of really more most intimate numbers uh, live where you can really feel the presence yeah. of the actor in the proximity of the camera, and then we'll do the big numbers playback? You, you made La La Land. You know about musicals. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Um, it was all done based on intimacy. That was really it. It was all based on intimacy. And, and then acoustics also. That's the other thing I have, to, I have to keep in mind. I mean, yeah, sorry to just jump in. The, 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 that's another thing I just wanted to, which, you know, and often with movies, unfortunately, we don't talk about it enough, is, is the soundscape and the sound mix and the acoustics of it. That was something that really blew me away um, when I saw this film. You know, I, I, like you, I'm a huge fan of the original score. And, uh, you know, I, I do think what Bernstein did with with West Side Story is probably the best, you know, it's the best set of songs in any musical in history, I think. Um, getting to hear, not just see, but hear your new renditions, uh, everything from the orchestration to how they were recorded to the mix of live and, uh, uh, I guess, uh, uh, done either before or after. And then what you and your brilliant uh, mixer, uh, Andy Nelson, Andy kind Nelson. of did um, to just bring it all together. It is again, a testament, I think, to why a movie like this belongs on the big screen. Um, and, uh, you know, it felt like going, you know, it's, it's the great thing with a good musical. You feel like you're going to a movie, but you're also going to a concert, to the symphony, to a dance hall. It's all, all together, uh, in one. Um, can you talk a little bit about the mixing? Because uh, I know that's an well, aspect well, of the process that often isn't talked about. No, it is. It's Gary, you know, it's, it's, it's Gary Rystrom and it's Andy Nelson yep. uh, mixing it. But it's also, we can't forget or leave out Gustavo Dudamel, who conducted the New York Philharmonic. And what he pulls from an orchestra is, is like night and day. It's, it's extraordinary what he pulls from the orchestra. And I did a lot of videos of Gustavo conducting because I loved his conversations about every single song. He'd go into backstory about every single song and he'd make every single member of that 110 piece orchestra feel like it was their stories we were telling as well because he got so personal about that score, why Stephen wrote those lyrics, why Bernstein did those orchestrations. And, um, and so it was an extraordinary experience watching him conduct. And then the other thing is, you know, we had Maitland on sound. The, you know, the production sound was incredible. And we had uh, Matt Sullivan and we had David Newman. David Newman did all. He's from, from the great Newman family. You know, Randy and Alfred and Thomas and the great Newman family and Emil. Um, and he basically did all the uh, with the complete permission of the Leonard Bernstein kids, Nina and Jamie and Alexander and Garth, their incredible musicologist. He was able to do the background score. He was able to write the score for the film, uh, complete, you know, taking every note from Leonard Bernstein's um, tapestries. And so it was just a complete collaboration on every single level. And I felt accompanied on this film. I feel accompanied on every film because I've got such great crews and, and I'm so proud of the kids I work with film after film. But because this was larger in scale than anything I've, I think I've done before, we all felt intimate in a huge production. You know, it only felt like a huge production when you counted the honey wagons. That was it. 
That was it. Or you saw where everybody was parking their cars. That was really impossible. But otherwise, it was, we held each other's hands for four and a half months. And then remember something else on a musical, which you understand very well, Damien, and everybody here that's done this before, whether it's on commercials or, or videos or on television, you know, you know how much rehearsal it takes. We rehearsed as many weeks as it took to shoot the film. So we were four and a half months in rehearsal and four and a half months in principal photography. And I've never experienced that before. And I think what really helped me, because having not made a musical, but having watched every musical that Arthur Freed ever produced in those MGM days ever, I, d- I discovered one thing. You can't be in the audience and love musicals and think you can direct a musical. Because I started in rehearsal putting my iPhone to every single dance that was being in- invented and choreographed by Justin Peck, this brilliant New York choreographer. He's associate director of of the New York City Ballet Company. And he gave such musculature to the dance, always, always doffing his cap to Jerry Robbins. Um, But it was, it was his own choreography. And it's, and I was able to take my little phone and I was able to get all my shots. And so every single day I was actually finding angles, figuring out how I can make a musical out of this cutting the videos together, putting the music to it, looking at it, and saying, you know, I shouldn't be making a musical. This doesn't work. (laughs) This isn't good. This is bad. This is like, really, this is not good at all. And then I go back the next day, and I do a whole other series. So I was investigating the approach to how I was going to mount the musical numbers, let alone the drama in between. And the four and a half months really was a... basically for me save the movie for myself it really did because I really got the hang of it uh, but I had to do it in practice sessions over and over and over again and, and, and then one, how much does that then kind of change once you're on set once you're in the locations once you kind of got, have wind under your sails do, do you find looking at the final result that um, in many ways it is just an expansion of those iPhone videos from rehearsal or it, did it more it, it's much different, but the iPhone rehearsals actually were confidence building. It was really about building confidence. And yet there are certain numbers in the movie that you just saw that are pretty much like what I shot on the iPhone. And I'll tell you what the one is, Officer Krupke. That's very much how I shot it on my iPhone. And often Justin, I, I would have an idea for a shot or a, a camera move, and Justin would then adjust the choreography to where I wanted to place the camera. So sometimes I dressed to Justin, and sometimes Justin dressed to me. Mm-hmm. And that was the what I discovered, which everybody else who's made a musical already knows long time before me, that is the secret. You have to, your, your brother or sister is really your choreographer in, on something like this. You have to really dress your ideas and address your ideas constantly with each other. I did most of my storyboarding in front of Justin. Mm. I would sit in his office at the Lincoln Center with his, his soon-to-be wife, Patricia Delgado, the assistant choreographer, and I did storyboarding on the entire prologue right in front of them just with a pencil and paper because Justin was then looking at the storyboards to say, I think I can do that, but I think, what if we try something like this? And, oh, wow, that's a great idea. So it was, it was that kind of a collaboration. Beautiful, yeah. And, and is it, did you find it like that that aspect of the production is really you and Justin, and then, uh, like, I'm just curious, once you have the 
the other elements that have to then come to bear. Like, do, do you find that you want to take detours in the choreography that then dictate musical changes, arrangement changes, or timing changes? Or, or obviously, Giannis, at some point, I imagine, other than being told not to wet down streets, uh, I'm sure he had some kind of uh, opinions of, uh, of some of these. So at what point do you, is it kind of creating that little cocoon with Justin? And then once you're ready, you bring in the rest it, of the team? Yeah, Justin, it was just Justin, Patricia, and myself. And I was flying to New York because I got so, uh, I get a lot of storyboards at home, which I usually do, but a lot of storyboards in front of them because we could right away put the music to the storyboards. And then I would take my camera and I would film each of my, and my storyboards are really bad, but you can still see there's a head, a stick for a body and two arms. And I, I learned how to draw a stick figure dancing. You take the right arm, you put it up in the air, you take the right leg and put it up in the air. And that looks like a dancer. I had a lot of that on these pieces, on these squares, you know, and we did all of this and put it to music and then I actually took my camera and I filmed the storyboards to the music. So even before we got to rehearsal, the storyboards were bringing some life into the project. So you would move your camera across the, you across the storyboards. Sort of set to the music. Always to the tempi of the music and, and then the other, the other you know, thing that really, really helped. And then Janusz would get involved after that and he got involved as he does with all of my films and he's and basically I've always done I set the camera and I, set, I pick the lens and I, I set the dolly shot. I, I always stage and block and Janusz then uh, uh, lights everything I mean he lights everything brilliantly I've never met anybody or worked with anybody like him before but he also philosophically does this we sit down before we make a movie and we talk about we see a lot of art we look at a lot of photographs, a lot of photographs from the 1950s in color. What, what does it look like? We got, we, we get, he brings all these books to me and he opens the books up. We pour over the books and we find shots and samples of color and texture and tone and desaturation or full saturation that we like. And then we determine a color palette, especially with West Side Story, which I think is kind of the embodiment of our color palette. And Paul Taswell, the costume designer, is part of this. Do you remember the shot in the dance in the gym where the shot starts with the sharks from a high shot and then whip pans over to the jets? And you can immediately see the differences in Paul's choices for the, for the girls and the boys of the sharks and the girls and the boys of the jets. And that's pretty much what Janusz and I did in designing a color scheme for the entire film where things get darker and more blue and more moody as we get past um, America, where things start to slip into, into tragedy. Uh, well, I have to say, I mean, it's, it's, again, just as you're describing it, the, that combo of, of sort of intimate, handmade, uh, sort of artisanal sort of approach to these kind of things, and then the sort of big, the big sweep of it um, that you kind of get at the end, uh, it's, it's pretty spectacular. So I just want to... Uh, Thank you again for for making the film. Thank all of you for coming out. Thank you all very, very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America.